Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of ChrisGettingIt.org, and this is ChrisGettingIt Europe with Sven Longshanks. Today we are going to discuss usury in Europe. This is a topic which could probably be discussed for months, and here we only have about 90 minutes or so. The knee belongs. The knee belongs were, depending on which German myths you read, the Nibelungs were a race of dwarfs from whom the 5th century Burgundian kings obtained a great hoard of gold. Legend has it that the gold ultimately ended up in the bottom of the Rhine and didn't really profit those kings at all. Rumpelstiltskin was also a dwarf who would spin straw into gold in return for a Christian baby. Modern commentators cannot understand why the little old dwarf would want a Christian baby, but anyone who truly knows the Jews would indeed understand. It is shameful that wherever we see such things in pagan Germanic literature, the pagans are portrayed as being lustful of the gold of these dwarfs, whom history better knows as Jews. There is little to know moral ground upon which pagans can stand in order to reject the treachery of Jews in white society. The pagan Greek and Roman historical records rarely discuss usury, but I cannot ever recall having seen it denounced or described in the histories as a moral problem. But Livy, the Roman historian, did indeed describe more than one uprising of the people against the usurers, not complaining about usury itself, but complaining about interest rates that were simply set too high. On the other hand, however, some of the notable Greek philosophers did see usury as a moral problem. From Plato's laws, Plato certainly had the Old Testament writings for a lot of his inspiration. From Plato's laws, circa 360 BC, of course these were a philosopher's suggestions. This is a political treatise, even though it's entitled Laws. They were never actually adopted by any state as a body of law. But Plato says, And no one shall deposit money with another whom he does not trust as a friend. Plato would bar depositing money with bankers. Nor shall he lend money upon interest. And the borrower should be under no obligation to repay either capital or interest. From Aristotle's politics, written ten years later perhaps, we see much the same attitude, 350 BC. There are two sorts of wealth getting, as I have said. One is a part of household management. The other is retail trade the former necessary and honorable, while that which consists in exchange, meaning retail trade, is justly censured, for it is unnatural, and the mode by which men gain from one another, the most hated sort, and with the greatest reason, is usury.
which makes a gain out of money itself, and not from the natural object of it. For money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase at interest. And this term interest, which means the birth of money from money, is applied to the breeding of money because the offspring resembles the parent. Wherefore, of any modes of getting wealth, this is the most unnatural. But the pagan governments never heeded the advice of Plato or Aristotle. The pagan Greek states, as well as pagan Rome, never forbade the plague of usury, and the usurers thrived in the pagan world. However, later Christian writers did discuss usury at length, and always denounced it as immoral. Among these, the most famous in recent times are probably Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther. However, Christian writers condemned usury from the very beginning. We see condemnations or calls for the prohibition of usury in the writings of Clement of Alexandria, 1st century, Tertullian, 2nd century, John Chrysostomus, golden-mouthed John, Apollonius, Cyprian, Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, Ambrose, even Augustine, and Jerome. The apostolic canons date to the 4th century and prohibited the taking of usury by Christian clergy. However, the Council of Arles and the First Council of Nicaea had the same prohibitions much earlier, 314 and 325 A.D., taking it even further than that and where it belongs. The Council of Elvira, 305 or 6 AD, the First Council of Carthage in 345 AD, and even into the 8th century, the Council of Aix, Aix, A-I-X, A-I-X, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce French, I don't know how they say that, in 789, those councils, Carthage, Elvira, in the 4th century, along with the later French Council in the 8th, prohibited usury to Christians entirely, clergy and laity. While the Bishop of Rome in the 5th century did not yet have temporal authority over other bishops, since that was not granted to him until the time of Justinian in the 6th century, Nevertheless, the man known to history as Leo the Great, who was Bishop of Rome from 440 to 461 AD, had in the year 443 written a letter addressed to Christian bishops of neighboring regions in Italy, Tuscany, Campania, which contained a section dealing with usury. It prohibited usury, the people and the clergy. It described usury as unjust, among other uncharitable practices, which exploit the poor. 
it is no wonder that not even a hundred years later, the Jewish merchants of Naples and other Italian cities met with the Goths and assisted the Goths in their cause against the Romans. They also assisted in resistance to the Byzantines in Libya. The Jews thrived in pagan Rome, and ostensibly the Jewish merchants were on the side of the Goths because the Roman and Byzantine Christians were outlawing usury. The Byzantines ultimately prevailed, and the Jews were virtually excluded from openly practicing usury with Christians in Europe in most places for a thousand years, until the Fifth Lateran Council made usury legal once again under a crypto-Jew de Medici Pope. The Protestant Reformation soon followed, and the German reformers forbid usury in Germany once again. However, the resulting Thirty Years' War led to greater financial freedom for Jews. That war was fought for reasons deeper than what appears on the surface. Jews were comfortable in pagan Rome among pagan Germans, but were always struggling against Christianity. True Christianity is the only moral defense against the wiles of the devil. After the Thirty Years' War, usury became the tool by which the Jews would ultimately undermine Christian society entirely. And look at us today. I believe that um, my co-host, Sven Longshanks, has some lengthy words on this topic. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Hi, Bill. Uh, hello, listeners. Praise Yahweh. Um, yeah, I mean, that was really good. There's a lot of information there that... Um, I hadn't really thought about it before, especially the, uh, the, um, the Rappelstiltskin bit. But I suppose it's, it should be quite obvious that it's to, to do with Jews. And the, the information I've got here um, it, it should um, add to what, what you've just said rather than repeat any of it, I think. And uh, gradually over the years, user has been redefined from being an amount asked for on top of the principal amount of a loan to just being excessive interest. And this has been a slow process happening over the last 500 years. But before that, usury had its original and true meaning, which is asking for anything over and above the principal amount loaned. It was seen as unjust earnings and four times worse than theft in legal terms. Although it is usually applied today only to money, which is not a thing in itself but a measure of value, back then it did not just apply to the loaning of money, but to the loaning of anything, you would not loan a coat to somebody and expect a pair of trousers with it to come back. And the same common sense applied to the loaning of money. And the church saw it as a mortal sin and they prosecuted it as such for around 1500 years with usurers being refused absolution, their will and testimony being nullified and their descendants deprived of all inheritance. Usurers would have no Christian burial and all their possessions would be seized and distributed among the poor. It was seen as being against the divine law, natural law and man's law as it was gaining an increase through unnatural means and cheating man at the time that God had given him by using it up in paying for something which did not exist and was not a part of the loan. 
Now I'll go into um, as some of the some of the actual laws themselves in a bit. But this, this prohibition on, on usury led to also led to the concept of a just price and a living wage, which was enough for a man to support a wife and four children. And it was the intrinsic value of the work or product to the community that mattered, not making a profit on it for the individual. Supply and demand was no reason to raise prices, as to charge more than the correct price was a sin, and competition or monopolies were unheard of. And people did trade at a profit, but they did not trade for profit. The object of working was to help your community, not yourself, and the living wage was adequate but not luxurious. Without the community, the individual would have nothing. So to seek to make a profit from that community for doing nothing other than your duty to it was quite rightly seen as wrong. The rich were looked upon with suspicion and pity and they were required by their own faith to give to the poor or to loan to them, expecting nothing back on top. And the medieval guilds determined what the just price and the living wage were. And in the Middle Ages, 14 weeks of the year were all that a labourer needed to work for in order to provide for his entire family. In their spare time, the people would help build the cathedrals and churches throughout Europe, which were all built voluntarily with no debt or mortgage involved. This also became a good way to learn new skills. Now, a user did nothing to help his community. He forsook husbandry or merchandise and instead was a parasite. Worse than a thief, since thieves only stole from the rich and out of necessity. The usurer wished for others to lack so that he might profit. Even the word profit has had its meaning changed from that of to advance or to progress, to now meaning a pecuniary gain resulting from employment of capital in a transaction. You know, thanks to usury, the actual language itself has changed. Now, it was, it was practically unheard of in Christian Europe until the Jews entered. Now, I'm talking about Northern Europe here, Britain, France, Germany. It was practically unheard of until the Jews entered, and a large part of the reason for this was the church teaching on it. The Bible sees usury as a weapon of war. The Israelites were banned from lending anything out at usury to one another. They were only to use it against their enemies, the Canaanites, who were already employing it among themselves. Now, Alfred the Great included the laws and punishments for usury when he collected the ancient laws of Britain together into one place. And these, these differed quite considerably from the Roman laws, which allowed the charging of interest, but only to a certain extent. Now, if you look in the um, life of Alfred the Great, it includes some of the, the um, laws that he collected. And that's where you get the bit where a user would have everything taken from them, their house, their business the lot. You know, it was just completely illegal. So there was no way that, that a Jew could could get by in Britain at that, at that time because just what they did, which is, was banking, was completely outlawed. And it was, it was by following the Roman laws, as opposed to the biblical laws, that the popes would gradually relax the Catholic Church's teaching on usury later on, which was then imitated by the Protestants. And this started because if there had not been two laws in operation, one for the Jews and one for the Christians, then this situation where the church chose to ignore biblical teaching on the subject would not have been able to arise in the first place. But the Jews, the Jews were first brought into Britain by William Norman in 1066 to act as tax collectors for him. And when they arrived, they also began loaning out money. And because they were not Christian, they were able to argue that they should not have to follow Christian laws. Now, any decent king who cared for his subjects would not allow anyone into their country that did not have to follow the same laws as everyone else. 
And the good kings of Britain up until this time had refused to allow any Jews in for that, for that reason. As well as lending money out, they also started clipping the coins, melting the slivers down, and then smuggling them into Europe. And this was the origins of the spy network that the Rothschilds would later make use of to gain inside information on the Battle of Waterloo, eventually using the networks to transfer secrets from the royal courts instead of just the wealth of one country into another. And the Jews in Britain, along with depriving the nation of its gold and, and bleeding the peasants dry through usury, they also started abducting children and torturing them to death, as we covered in an earlier podcast. And this last outrage was the final straw, and Edward I expelled them from the country in 1290. Now, it's a great shame that the popes and kings of Italy did not do the same, but instead they started tolerating the Jews' activities. They allowed them to set their money-lending operations up over there, where they soon started fleecing the poor again and ingratiating themselves with the aristocracy. It was the result of the Jews making the poor even poorer over there that became the excuse for the Catholic Church to start up their own version of a bank. The Monte di Pieta was supposed to be a charity bank, and the first one was set up in Florence around 1350, so like uh, 60 years after the Jews had been expelled from Britain. Its, its brief was to provide loans to the poor to prevent them from being preyed upon by the Jewish moneylenders but they themselves started stealing people's time by claiming that charges for administration needed to be made. Now, this isn't true, because in Britain, a real one was set up by a Bishop Michael Knockberg with a deposit of a 1,000 silver marks that were lent in exchange for pawned objects, and there were no charges for admin made. At this genuine charity bank, it was run by people who gave their time for free to help the poor, rather than to make a profit. And gradually, the Italian Monte di Pieto grew, until it was funding the whole state of Florence and charging the people the equivalent of taxes to pay for it. And it offered an interest rate for deposits as well as collecting interest on the loans, but it covered it by saying it was for administration costs. Eventually, 86% of the debts of this bank were owed to the richest 10% of the province, who were also the ones that were setting the interest rates. So in 1382, a usurer's legal indulgence was proclaimed by the Pope absolving them from civil and criminal prosecution and the just price started to be challenged by the lawyers who wanted, then wanted the right for every man to make the best bargain that he could because prior to this even charging more for goods on credit had been seen as theft. As the Renaissance dawned the Italians started looking to Roman law for ways to justify their sinful banks rather than looking at biblical and Christian precedents. Now, Emperor Justinian had set a standard that the popes were to end up following, condemning usury on the one hand while setting acceptable rates for it with the other. The Italian lawyers claimed that laws must change to keep pace with the time, and that usury was a worldly necessity and that the ban on it was a product of irrational superstition. They started undermining the guilds that had previously set the just price and the living wage, and they revived the Roman laws that legalised usury and permitted speculation in prices. Eventually, in 1515, Pope Leo X declared the charity banks to actually be meritorious, and that anyone who disagreed was a heretic. And this was an unprecedented overthrow of Christian social justice, and it enabled the Jewish moneylenders to team up with the Gentile ones, under the cover of protecting the poor from usurers, of course. And it caused a complete reversal from the original meaning of commerce, which had formerly been a way of interacting with and giving back to the community, 
and how it became a way of taking from the community with individual material gain as its primary motive. And the economy had changed from being one of mutual protection to being one of unilateral capitalist exploitation. <clears throat> I don't know if you want to add anything there, Bill, or whether you want like me to carry on. Well, well that, let, let, let me just interject something. Leo X, who you mentioned, did um, pass that bull on May 4th, 1515, which sanctioned the Monte de Pieta and actually forced the Monte de Pieta on what which are basically pawn shops, right? Usurious pawn, pawn shops. Forced that on many Christian bishops in Europe who had rejected the, the um, usury in their own diocese and, and who were steadfastly against it and Leo X was, his real name was Giovanni de' Medici. He was a de' Medici Pope, and the de' Medicis, I believe, were um, in political control of Florence, where the Monte de Pieta, as you say, first developed and, and became the primary vehicle of... Um, this, of gaining wealth for the, for the rich people of Florence. So, so this is all tied in together. The de Medici's are the um, controlling forces lurking behind the scenes in enforcing the sanctioning of these pawn shops on Christian Europe. Now, there were um, other papal bulls, which were actually quite evil, that were um, that were passed. And, and issued by the Pope Leo X during this same period of time. And, and this eventually set off Martin Luther's 95 Theses and the Protestant Reformation in Germany. That's all I want to say. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So it's, it's all linked in together. Yes. It's all linked in together. And, and there, was, um, there, there was a lot of resistance against this, and there, there were some real firebrand preachers that um, spoke out against it. it. It wasn't like it was, it was an easily accepted thing, and the laws even continued to change, as I'll, I'll get into now. It, um, okay, so ca carry on. In England, Henry VIII changed the law to follow the example of the Pope in 1538. But Edward VI banned, banned it straight away again in 1545, calling it unnatural and equivalent to manslaughter or homicide, entirely wrong in itself and damnable. But unfortunately, King Edward's usury ban only lasted until 1571, where it was repealed by Elizabeth I's Parliament. All mention of God and his law against usury disappeared, and instead, acceptable rates of usury were set making it allowed if it was at no more than 10%. And in 1600, the East India Trading Company caused the demand for loans to grow, and usury became an integral part of the monarchy's economic model, with James I absurdly titled Law Against Usury, making it seem a normal and necessary part of life in 1624. It was shortly after this that Oliver Cromwell overthrew King Charles I and had him beheaded in 1649, with an army financed by Jewish backers from Holland. Now, the Jews then managed to talk Cromwell into allowing emissaries of theirs back into England so that they could make their case of being allowed back into the country. 
and Cromwell was eventually deposed after doing incredible amounts of damage to Britain, started a civil war in England, executed the rightful king, and then, then went to war against Ireland, as well as facilitating the Jews to come back in. Now, after he died, he was dug up again and hanged for his crimes, before being beheaded himself and his head stuck on a 20-foot spike on top of Westminster Hall, which is what they used to do to traitors. Now, the next king... Charles II officially allowed the Jews back into the country again, but the law for expelling them still remains on the books, as you cannot undo laws. It is just waiting there to be revived. But the Jews had no loyalty to Charles, though, and straight away they started plotting to depose his heir and brother, King James II, who was the last Catholic king of England. And they did this with the help of William of Orange. And once William of Orange had the reins of the country, he repaid the Jews who had helped him by giving them a charter, allowing them to call themselves the Bank of England. And this was in 1694. And it's very much like he gave away the sovereign right of the nation to create its own money in exchange for him being put on the throne of England. And it was from here that they were then able to start fractional reserve banking, which means loaning out much more than you could ever cover in deposits, because nobody ever asks for all the deposits back all at once. And they were able to fund other banks throughout Europe, all working to the same principle, and had no shortage of people wanting loans in order to trade with the far reaches of the empire and the new world. And in 1745, Pope Benedict XIV, I think it is, expanded Leo X's law to make interest on investment credit capital legal and allowed certain other titles to run parallel with the loan. Shortly after this, the Rothschild family began banking using the smuggling routes mentioned earlier as communication lines with which they were able to get inside information on Waterloo and crash the London Stock Exchange. By doing this, they were able to buy up controlling shares in much of the industry of Britain as well as the banks themselves and replacing the few Gentiles that had been involved in it since the lifting of the restrictions by the church. And the first loan from the Rothschild Bank to the Pope was in 1832 and by 1850 there had been another for 50 million francs. In 1857, Peter's Pence was pledged as collateral, and by 1872, the Holy See was upping the allowed interest rate on loans to 8%. In 1918, Benedict XV proclaimed that it was not illicit to reap a legal profit from loans, and by 1983, John Paul II actually made it a requirement of all church admins to invest for profit all funds not needed for expenses. This is far removed from the original church teaching for clergy and laymen alike, which can be summed up with this quote from the Council of Tarragona, Canon 2. Whoever will be in the clergy, let him be careful not to buy too cheap or sell too dear, or let him be removed from the clergy. And from the Bank of England, the Jews were then able to start the World Bank and the IMF and decouple banking entirely from the precious metals that it had started with. Now this eventually had to happen, as once you add interest to the system, it has to continually expand in order for there to be enough currency in circulation to pay back the previous loans. If you lend out £100, there is only £100 in circulation that can be paid back. So if the bank asks for more than £100 back, the only way for the extra to be found is if another loan is taken out somewhere, which then puts the extra money into circulation. So you can see that the system was terminal from the start. It will always cause inflation and it will always cause money to lose its original value and it will always crash. It has to crash. And this is the real reason why the banking system crashed. It was an inbuilt flaw in the system right from the beginning. That's why the divine law forbids the taking of interest 
no matter how small it, how small it is. So it was built in right from the very beginning that the whole system would crash if we allowed interest. And we would not have, we would not have allowed it if we hadn't brought the Jews in here in the first place. Because it, it was them doing it was the excuse that the <coughs> authorities used to change the law to allow it. Whereas up, and, up until that point, it was just a part of the Christian faith that the poor were there to be helped. And the rich were rich so that they could give to the poor. And it, the poor was seen as an excuse for people to do the right thing. Otherwise, you know, they, they wouldn't have an excuse to do the right thing and be a blessing to the poor. Uh, the verses in the Bible about, um, uh, I've got the, got down here for the exact words. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days it shall come back to you. And in a closed system within a nation, whatever you give out to the nation, it stays within the nation and it, and it will come, come back to you. So you have the rich and the poor and, and they change over time and the, the rich man may be poor at some point in the future. In a closed system, he will be looked after. What, what we've also got um, Matthew, um, from the book of Matthew, and it says that when you give alms, let not your left hand know what your right hand does. So, you know, you're not supposed to make money out of, out of calamity. You're not supposed to make money out of other people's bad luck. And that's the whole idea of doing that has come from usury and from trying to make money out of nothing. And just to go back to the to the just price that I was mentioning before, if there was um, like a, a catastrophe that had happened and there was a shortage of building materials, nowadays people would be, be putting the price up on the building materials because they would be wanting to make as much money as they possibly could from it. Whereas in the Middle Ages, if there was a catastrophe, there would be a limit put on how much the building materials could cost and the money would come from the king to subsidise that so that every, everybody could have it because it was needed. It was required. Things, things that were required were subsidised. There, there were limits put on, on the prices that people could charge. And there are even cases in the law books of people being taken to court. And this is in America as well. There was, there was one chap was sent back to England for charging too high prices. Because it wasn't just the Catholics doing this. The, the, the Protestants did it as well. But the Protestants did fight against it and, and the Catholics fought against it as well. But you, you can see what's... Um, you know, where it's all come to today, where, where everybody is just scrambling over one another to make, to make the next dollar and, and trying to, it's seen as almost a virtue to, um, to be rich nowadays and, and to, to make money off, off the backs of the poor. Whereas in the past, it, it was the other way around. I don't know if you want to add to that, Bill. Well, well, yeah, I had quite a few things to add to that here and there. Um, <laughs> Well, well, first, it, it's a Christian precept right from the, the story of the Exodus. And, and I, I don't want to hear that these people were Jews. They certainly were not Jews. If they were Jews, they would have been accountants. If they were Jews, they would have um, slaughtered the Canaanites with the Canaanites with usury, prostitution, pornography, and pencils. The, um, in, in the Exodus story, the children of Israel were... What were um, told to gather the manna, which comes from God. 
And it says in Exodus chapter 16 that the children of Israel did so and gathered. Some more, some less. Some of us have a greater ability to gather than others. And when they did measure it out with the homer, he that gathered had nothing over. And he that gathered much had nothing over. And he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. So... They volunteered to make sure that everybody ate regardless of their skill in gathering. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 8, what we see, what, what is basically a command to the wealthy and to those who grow rich in a Christian society, and... The God of the Bible warns that we should not say in our hearts, my power and the might of my hand has given me this wealth. But thou shalt remember that the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. In other words, we have wealth so that we can in turn help to sustain our communities so that the promises which God has bestowed upon our race can be fulfilled. That's why we as individuals are given wealth. And we should take our wealth and seek to sustain our communities. It's um it, it's a matter of common sense that if you have a hundred families in a community who all work together in order to um secure the interests of one another, who join in common defense when it comes to time of war, they should also have common defense in economic matters. If I'm going to um, let my sons go off to fight for you, well, when it comes down to economic matters, you should equally look out for the well-being of my sons. If these hundred families work together in a common defense and a common society to keep themselves secure from enemies and and crime and things like that. And in comes the Jew and corrupts one family and gets that one family to borrow money at usury so that that one family can leverage capital and gain from the other 99 families in the community. That one family in the community is going to naturally become a parasite looking to profit from the other 99 families so that he could pay the Jew. That's what usury does to a community. It drains the community. The Jews love John Calvin. And I'm going to quote from the Mises Institute. And Mises was a Jewish Economist, the libertarians love this Jew devil, and and Mises. Well, well, it it it's 
It advertises itself as Austrian, but Mises was a Jew. And they love Calvin, and they say that Calvin's main contribution to the usury question was in having the courage to dump the prohibition altogether. That's Calvin. These people that love Calvin have actually or, or supported the advances of the cause of the Jews against Christian society. They go on to say, this son of, a, of an important town official had only contempt for the Aristotelian argument. As I quoted Aristotle at the beginning of this program, and his feelings towards usury, the Aristotelian argument that money is sterile. A child, he pointed out, knows that money is only sterile when locked away somewhere. But who in their right mind borrows to keep money idle? Merchants borrow in order to make profits on their purchases, and hence money is then fruitful. So Calvin is basically the, the um, favored reformer of the Jews, of the enemies of Christianity, where Luther condemned usury time and time again. And most of the German reformers followed Luther. In the 18th century, I'm sorry, yeah, the 18th century, I believe, in, in America, it was Cotton Mather. The New England clergy was staunchly against usury. It, it might have been the 17th century, but they were staunchly against usury, and, and the practice was forbidden throughout New England. And along came Cotton Mather, and Mather basically advocated usury, and, and, and was very influential, and came from an influential family, and succeeded in softening the positions on usury throughout much of the New England clergy, and eventually the practice became accepted in Boston and, and the rest of New England. So, so that, that, the acceptance of usury by Christendom and, and by virtual clowns, devils, that these men are, are advocating, that they advocated for the devil if they were not devils themselves, Cotton Mather, John Calvin, and others like them, that secured the path by which Satan emerged from the pit in which he had been bound for a thousand years. And now the Jews control formerly Christian society. And that was done through that their, at, at first their, um, that they had the market cornered on usury, but, but even ever since that they've been the dominant usurers and, and the practice of usury should be seen as evil by Christians as it was seen from the very first Christian writers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way it used to be looked at, I mean, I'm not saying that people didn't used to make money. I mean, that people did used to uh, have ways of doing things so that they weren't actually putting interest on it. Uh, because the whole point was that God punishes who he punishes and he rewards who he rewards. And it was seen as 
cheating God, if he tried to punish somebody and, and they weren't punished because instead of losing their money, they had interest on it and, and they had to be paid back. What they, what they would do is if you had, um, if somebody had wealth and you had somebody that wanted to go and sell something, they would, they would both go in together on the venture and they would go 60-40 on the profits. But if everything was lost, then they would both lose. They would both lose out, and and they would see it as a punishment from God that they'd done something wrong, and they, and they would have to improve next time. They were being tested by God, so it was it was seen as as cheating God if they were then if one of that half of the group was still to get paid because the other one had to pay him back because it was a loan with interest on it. Because it, you know if, if they say then the banks say, well, it doesn't matter if your business venture fell through, you still have to pay me back. Whereas the way they used to do things in the past, it, is, was, it would be as partners, and and from that we've now got insurance, which they would have, they would have seen insurance as being a sin years ago as well, because it, it's it's protecting you from when God wants to punish you. If God God wants to punish His people, then you're supposed to learn from that. You're not supposed to cheat Him and cheat him from, from being able to punish you so that, so that you learn from it. You can see that it goes on from the allowing the usury and the interest. You've now got the uh, huge insurances that everybody has to now pay just in case something goes wrong. You've got um, organised charities. and Instead of charity being um, an action, like you, you're charitable towards somebody, you've now got these big corporatised groups that try to make a profit from people's money and, and it's seen as a, as a good thing that they're making a profit and it becomes all about keeping this organisation going rather than actually helping people and, and a lot of the time that help is is taking place uh, over the other side of the world it's not even helping your own people and the people that have handed out that money they, they feel like they've done the right thing but, but they haven't done you know they, have, they haven't actually carried out God's command of, of charity which is supposed to be to your own people where a charity begins at home. It, it's, it's something that you, you should feel for your race. It, it's a, a racial thing of, of looking after your own people. That's why they always say charity begins at home. It's not supposed to be um, uh, some corporatized corporation group that uh, makes money and then and diverts it elsewhere. That's, that's just... Um, Making people feel good that they've done something when they haven't—it's just—it's just shallow. You know, people should be looking after their their communities. And usury is, is, as you were saying earlier, just then, it's just it just siphons everything out from from the community. And they changed these laws to allow that, and they made it seem like it was a good thing. You know, it's your human right to make as much money as you can and to get the best bargain you can and to make the most money you can. Well, it's, it's not a human right if it's your community that you're doing that to. You're, you're, you're taking as much as you possibly can from your community. Because if it wasn't for the community, you would have nothing. It's thanks to the community around you that you have all the inventions that you see. Thanks to the, the community around you that everything and if you look back at, at your ancestors that what they provided you know, we owe our community and we owe our race we're, we're not here as as uh, individuals to take whatever we can from it we're here to do our duty and to give back to it and to think that you're here to take whatever you can <clears throat> I mean that is exactly what the Jew does and he's an, an alien um, in our midst so he has no loyalty to the nation well he, what, he is here just to take whatever he can 
from our nations and, it, and it's beneficial to him if he can get us to behave the same way as him because he's the expert at it we'll never, never be as, as, as good at, at parasiting as the Jew but if he can turn everybody else into parasites then nobody's going to be able to um, unite together and, and eject him and nobody's going to be able to trust one another and everybody's going to be out trying to make whatever they can instead of doing what they can for their community, which is how things things uh, used to be. I mean, as, as, I was, as I was saying earlier, the, the, the kings, the Christian kings, for the thousand years up to 1066, they all had serious laws against usury. You know, it was just not allowed. It, it, you, you would lose everything. You'd lose your home, you'd lose your business, you would not be able to give, um, pass anything on down to your children. And it, it was seen as a really wicked, evil thing to do, right? because uh, even a thief does it out of necessity. Well, well that is that, that is why in, in in the Jewish pop culture under which we live, and and for the last hundred and fifty years, it's probably been promoted very heavily in the Jewish media. Stardom, egoism, and individual individuality. Those three things all go hand in hand, and they are so important to the success of Jews in society because it that that they balkanize each individual member of society, they alienate them all from one another, and we see that in all Western cities today, and they make them into sort of automatons who seek only their own profit when in reality because they do not any longer act as a community they each become individual targets for the Jew the capitalist Jew to profit from in the medieval world under the feudal system under um, the, the Roman Republic a man derived his personal sense of worth from what he did for the community in this modern capitalistic world a man derives his personal sense of worth from how many Jewish shekels he could get into his bank account to spend on trinkets in order to decorate himself or his house and and that that's a very empty sense of worth in the long run because all you have at the end of your life is a pile of shit. Adolf Hitler understood this and banned usury um, practically fr from the function of government in National Socialist Germany. And, and created a currency that was not usury-based, which is anathema to the Jew, so National Socialist Germany had to be destroyed. Hitler understood the Christian concept of giving your life for your, for your community or your brethren, which is what Christ did, and sought to promote that idea in Germany and, and it's very heavily discussed in Mein Kampf that the man functions 
for the good of his community and should derive his sense of worth from what he does for his people. That's the, the one of the major founding um, precepts of National Socialism. Now, that's why I always insist, and, and for many other reasons, that it is entirely Christian in its foundation. Under this capitalist society, we are all competitors against one another, when in fact, because we are all related by blood, we meaning white Europeans, and, and because we really would have never come into being without our common ancestors and the care which our common ancestors had for one another, then we should seek to support and build up one another. That's a Christian precept. That's all throughout the scriptures, and it's all throughout the, the, the writings of great Christian men ever since. The problem is that most people don't read those writings, no longer have those foundations, get all the information they think they need from Jewish media, and we're all at each other's throats, competing with one another while the Jew laps all the way to the bank. Well, I think people have re realized it as well. They know that they've got something missing, so they become hedonists and they become materialists. And the, the more they're cut off from their people, the more they seek to fill that void with, with crap, with nonsense, you know, to, with rubbish, trash that, that they just leave behind at the end of their lives. They can't take it with them. You know, they, they can't store it up to take it with them. It, it's just left there to waste. But the, the more estranged they are from their people, the more they spend on this junk to keep themselves occupied. Because they, they want to keep themselves distracted from the fact that they're missing their people. And they're not exactly, they're not entirely sure what it is, but they know that they're missing something. And what it is, is they're missing their people. They're missing the sense of um, contentment from giving to the community and, and doing things for other people. You, you can't make yourself happy. You can only make other people happy. You know, you, know, you know, that's the whole thing about about the community is, is doing things for them, and it, it's so much nicer when somebody does something for you without without you, you know, without you realizing it or knowing it or doing it for yourself. And somebody d d just does something kind for you, it, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference to to other people if you do something decent for them, and, and that's the way our societies used to be. It used to be helping helping the people out, and it, it wasn't a, ca a question of uh, only the poor helping the poor out and the rich helping the rich out. It, it didn't used to be like that because the way the aristocracy used to work, this, this is the other thing that's got twisted because of the usury, is the aristocracy. Now people used to have wealth because they were good at what they did. They were innovators. They were you know, wise people, educated people. They were creative and innovative and good in battle would end up becoming wealthy because they, they were naturally good at doing things. So you, it would be good people that actually had the wealth. Whereas nowadays, because you've got wealth that comes from usury, the people with the most money are the most wicked because they've got, they've got 
their wealth through treading on top of everybody else. There's, there's no other way that they can really do it nowadays. But in the past, having, having, uh, having wealth was far more likely to mean that you were a, a good person and it's somewhere to go to if you had a problem because they would be able to work out some way of you getting out of that problem because they would have the intelligence to do that. They would have the wit to do that. And where they were part of the same race, part of the same community, it's always their duty to help their community. And the, the old the old kings and the Celtic kings, I mean, anyone could have gone to the Celtic king with an idea for something, and, the, and, the, and if it was a good idea, the, the king would have, in, could, would have invested in it, given them the bit of land, given them whatever they needed to, to make this new thing, whatever it was they needed to do. Because they, they were good people. Whereas today, you've got the people that are uh, in charge today, or in our aristocracies and, and the authorities, the politicians, they're the worst people, the worst people of the lot. They're, they're the people that would have been the lowest of the low castes years ago. I mean, a user has it's turned everything on its head. The, the, the whole way that everything is supposed to be has been turned upside down. It, it really has. It's, it's turned what used to be seen as good is now seen as evil, and, and what's evil is, is now seen... Sin is good. Take what you can from 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 society, and and people will look up to you. And I say, I, th I think this is the reason why we see so much hedonism and materialism. Always is because people are missing their people. They're missing their their heritage. They don't even know they have a heritage anymore. They think that they were just born by an accident of birth, and that you know they could have been born an African. It didn't matter. You could just be born in any in anyone. What people think nowadays they've lost their heritage they've lost all sense of community they've been cut off from their from their, their racial soul they've been cut off from the the half fire of the race to uh, use someone else's words there the racial heart fire is what people have been cut off from yeah, and i think that's where this uh, this desire for, to, for you know owning loads and loads of material junk comes from i know it's added to with the advertisements and the, and the constant um, on the due media telling you you need, to, you need to earn more, you need to buy more, you need to buy this latest gadget here, this latest gadget there. But, you know, if people had a strong family life and, and, and a, a strong sense of community, I don't think these advertisements would have much effect. I don't think people would be interested. They would, they, they would see it for what it is, just, you know, trinkets and baubles, and, uh, just a, a, a short... Know, a, a short-term thing that's not lasting, whereas do things for, for your race and a, and a sense of awareness of your race, that, that's a, a long-lasting thing. That's something that you can look right back into the past and feel connected with. You, know, you can feel connected with, with all your ancestors going all the way back and, and think about how they felt and what they did and look to them for, for inspiration. You know, it's like honouring your father and your mother. Basically, he's, he's honouring your ancestors. And I think when people wake up to that, and they wake up to their race, then I, th I think they cease to be so interested in, in all this crap that's you know, pushed on us and, and told that we must have it in order to keep up with the Joneses. You, you had mentioned that um, people work to help their communities. I want to read a page, or, or I'm sorry, a paragraph from Chapter 11, Book 1 of Mein Kampf, and then I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and, and another quote or two from... Mein Kampf. The constructive powers of the Aryan 
and a peculiar ability he has for the building up of a culture are not grounded in his intellectual gifts alone. If that were so, they might only be destructive and could never have the ability to organize, for the later essentially depends on the readiness of the individual to renounce his own personal opinions and interests and to lay both at the service of the human group. By serving the common wheel, and of course Hitler saw the human group as a nationalist ethnic group distinctly, by serving the common wheel he receives his reward in return. We receive our rewards and our fulfillment in life by helping our brethren. For example, he does not work directly for himself, but makes his productive work a part of the activity of the group to which he belongs, not only for his own benefit, but for the general. The spirit underlying this attitude is expressed by the word work, which to him does not at all signify a means of earning one's daily livelihood, but rather a productive activity which cannot clash with the interests of the community. Whether, whenever, human activity is directed exclusively to the service of the instinct for self-preservation, it is called theft, or usury, robbery, or burglary. Hitler saw usury as a crime, and he also saw individuals working for their own interests rather than the interests of their people as a crime. John, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby, we perceive the love of God, because he, referring to Christ, of course, laid down his life for us, and we are to lay down our lives for the brethren. Adolf Hitler, page 146, Mein Kampf. The right to personal freedom comes second, import, second in importance to the duty of maintaining the race, our brethren. Page 94. The sacrifice of the individual existence is necessary in order to assure the conservation of the race. 1 John 3.16 Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We have an obligation to our Christian brethren, our racial brethren. That's the way John uses that term brethren. And Adolf Hitler understood that and applied that precept to his political philosophy, a Christian political philosophy. These um, capitalist individualists and, and, and most of the pagans that I've known and most of the Judeo-Christians, it doesn't matter what religion they profess with their mouths, Monday through Saturday, they basically practice Judaism by being capitalistic individuals competing against one another. That's not Christianity at all. That's not love for your community at all. And, and that's where our people are. And it's all because of the victory of capitalism over 
community and capitalism is a tool of the usurious Jew even though a lot of white Christians have bought into it they invented it they created it and they have used it to undermine white western society and now they own it on paper there's no doubt usury is that the um, caving in to Jewish usury as Paul of Tarsus said the love not money but the love of money is the root of all evil here we are it's not the uh, the money on its own that that causes the problems and it's not it's not even, even having the banks it's who's controlling the banks and we've been talking about the the way that usury um, just siphons the money out from the nation into the Jews pocket but the way the banks work it's even worse than that I mean we talked about the fractional reserve banking which is where they uh, lend out far more than they've actually got in their deposits but since they've decoupled everything from the gold which even that isn't isn't that much of of a problem but since, since they've uh, decoupled it from that, they, they're now, the way that money is created is from people taking out a loan. So if people are, um, if they ask for, say, a loan of over £100, they fill in this form, says, I owe you £100. The bank says, OK. And then they, they basically, they just publish that IOU. They, and that money goes into circulation. They make a bank book entry because you have said you will pay that back. And they make that bank book entry. So they're not actually loaning you anything because it's illegal for them to loan out the deposits that they have in the bank. So the, the way to get money into circulation is through people taking out loans. Now, once they, you know, this is a falsified debt because they are claiming to actually be loaning you something. They're not loaning you something. What they are doing is, is publishing your promise. It's your promise that has value. It's your word that has value. And they are monetizing the value of your word and then claiming that it's theirs. And then when you pay it back, they keep it. It should be zero once you pay it back. And they shouldn't be claiming that they're lending it to you from the money that they have in the bank because it's it's completely illegal for them to uh, lend you the money from the bank. So they're not just getting, siphoning the money from the interest, but they're taking, taking all the wealth of the country they're siphoning away. They're every, every, every pound note, every cheque, every bit of money there is in circulation got there through somebody... Through somebody taking out a loan. Sorry, the call dropped from talk show in the middle of Sven's discourse, and, and um, I believe he realized it and, and stopped. That seems to be the case. I'm not sure. But, but um, he's still here with us, and, and we are back. This, um, it used to happen quite regularly. Now it hasn't happened in, I would bet, a good 18 to 24 months. But here it is today. It's gone and happened. Hello, Sven. Welcome back. Hello, Bill. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm recording here as well, so I'll be able to um, send you a, a recording with that bit edited out if you if you need it. Um, yeah, I, I I'm not not sure where exactly where the call got cut off, but I was explaining about the way that they're getting the Jews are actually getting paid twice 
And if it was if, if it was our own nations that were running these banks that were that were publishing our promises, which is all that the money is, that's where it comes from. You make a promise to pay. The bank publishes that promise to pay. You then pay that money back to the bank, and then it gets zero. That's the way it should be, and that that would, is the way that it would be if it was run by our nations. That's you know, it's, it's just a, a simple bookkeeping exercise when somebody. Um, says promises to pay back a certain amount over a certain amount of time the, the uh, figures ri- written in the book the money goes into circulation when it comes back it gets taken off that bit in the book and that's the way that it should be done but because you've got these, these Jews running it when the money is paid back to them they keep that money so they're keeping hold of everything twice and it, it, it's, a, it's a really serious thing that they're actually doing there because what the way the money system works it works by fiat and fiat means to uh, I've got the exact wording here somewhere it's, it's yeah it's a command or act of will that creates something as if without further effort so it's creating something out of nothing with a command it's like you know in the bible let there be light and there was light yeah the fiat money is created by you, it's created by the value of your word, by you making a promise. I promise to pay this back. Now, if you pay, if, if you pay that money back to the bank, you've been as good as your word, and you've created that money to go into the system, which is, which is, you know, worked its way around, it's, it's paid for goods to be made, or it's, it's paid for people to do things, basically. Because to, to, to put that money back, you have to work, you have to do a certain amount of creation, so you know it's, it's a creating thing. It's, it's a, a really quite a deep spiritual thing. It's your word. It's your promise. And if everybody just lied, then the whole thing would would, would collapse. But all of that value from your promise, from your word, is being taken by these Jews. You know, and it's almost as if they, they've turned this system into the opposite of you know God creates he says let there be light and, and there is there is creation there is light whereas the Jews now have this money and we say I, I promise to pay this back and the Jews take all of it they, they, they take all that money back rather than that going back into the nation that you created with your promise and because they've got all that money everything that's been created every, everything that's been produced by the nation they, they've got the money to buy and on top of that they did putting interest on it as well, usury, so that it can never never actually all be paid back. And you continually have to borrow more and more and more just so that the last people that have borrowed can pay back the interest on, on their debt. So, you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly wicked, evil system. When you look at it like that, when you look at the spiritual side of it, that they, they, they're misappropriating our promise, our word, they're misappropriating it, and they, they've stolen that from us. And on top of that, they, you know, they own everything through it. The banks own everything, and the banks are not being run by our own people. They're being run by these parasites that, should, that we were told not to let in our nations. We were told not to let them into our nations, or they would rule over us. And and that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. I don't know if I explained it well. If if, if I explained it well enough there. Well, well, that's absolutely true, and and because we've allowed sins such as usury and, and and pornography and things like that into our society, the users and the pornographers now 
run our nations. And, and even worse, fractional reserve, that the international standard, the last I read, is that the reserve banks are allowed to lend out up to nine and a half times what they actually have on deposit. So if you deposit a dollar in a bank, somewhere along the line, some bank is allowed to loan out nine and a half dollars based on your one dollar deposit. And, and that's the, um, the figure that the international Jew has decided should be um, in the maintenance of a sound economy, meaning their own banking system, which is all pretty evil because they're loaning out dollars that never existed. They're loaning out money that never existed. So the borrower is creating the money, as you explained. And that's exactly what's happening. The borrows, the borrower creates the money on his promise of labor. The Jew loans the borrower money that doesn't exist. And the borrower pays back with tangible objects by putting tangible objects that he's created into the system and, and with real sweat and blood, so to speak, what, which is an evil system that allows the Jew to steal and increase to our labors, which is promised to the laborer by God. And, and the Jew just pilfers it right off the top. And even worse, in, in the... Um, the way the international money system is set up now, when one government borrows money, the Jew takes that obligation to pay in the form of government bonds and sells it to other governments who are the enemies of the borrower. So when the United States government borrows money from the Jew, the Jew sells the debt to China, because that way the Jew doesn't get stuck holding the bag when the debt is defaulted on, the Chinese do, and that leads to war when the debt is defaulted on. So the Jew has developed all kinds of tricks by which to profit from and at the same time to destroy the world. That, that's what he does. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible he, the way, the way that, well, well, yes, it is. And, and each one of us who, who, um, who engage in the consumer society are, are actually, um, guaranteeing our own future demise. It, it's, and the demise of our society. Because it, as you said, it, it's basically a pyramid scheme and it has to eventually crash. It must crash. Because it's always going to get to the point where there is more debt in a society that borrows on usury that can possibly ever be paid. It's inevitable. When the society... I've got a, a more in-depth in um, description here that, that describes exactly what it is that I think is quite a good way of, of describing it. It's called the Core Obfuscation. It's, it's from a website called Australia for MPE where they, they go into a lot of detail on this. Uh, it says the Core Obfuscation. Number one, the local bank steals a sum of principal an alleged borrower creates by purposefully obfuscating or misrepresenting the alleged borrower's promissory obligation before the banking book entry, 
pretending then to loan principal value to the alleged borrower only as if it was the bank's principal value to loan out in the first place, which is indeed a falsified debt. Number two, as a result of the bank's first crime, the bank then steals a further sum of principal, which is often a sum of two times the principal in total, by charging unwarranted interest on what is a falsified debt, as if the bank gave up or risked consideration of value of its own, commensurate or equal to the alleged loan or debt it clearly falsifies to itself. So it, it's completely unlawful what they are, what they are doing. And against their, against their own laws, it's on, it's unlawful. You know, it's just something that blew my mind when I first, re when you first really think about it, and you think that's, you know, that's how all the money gets into the system. It's through people taking out mortgages, taking out loans, and it's all their, them creating it through their work, through their blood, sweat, and tears. Now, the, the way to stop giving to this system is to make sure that you never get anything on credit. You know, and this is what people used to say. They used to say, never, uh, never be a lender or a borrower. Never a lender or a borrower be. You know, and then you'll be all right. And if, if you don't take out loans and you don't use a, a credit card and you don't get things on tick and you just live within your means, then you're not giving to this system. Because if you, if you're using a credit card or, or, or taking out loans, you owe, owe money to it. Every time that happens, that, you know, that's what they want you to do. Every time that happens, you are creating more money for them from, from you, from, from your honesty and trustworthiness is what they're creating it from. They're using your, your word, your honor to create this. So, you, you know, you just need to withdraw from it and you use a debit card, pay for things by cash. You know, don't don't spend more than don't spend more than you earn, and it's it's basic uh, Christian way to be anyway. Is is not to not to um, borrow and owe money. I think I think there's uh, stuff about that in um, in proverbs, but it's it's the way that people used to be. You know, there they never used to be all these credit cards around that the, that the banks are trying to sell to you. I think there used to be one or two credit cards, and that was it. And I think they've only been around for about uh, 30 or 40 years. I think they had credit, oil in, in, at least in Britain, that is. Uh, people never used to live on credit like they do now. They, they never did. Never used to get, get things um, on tick that, that you then have to pay pay back over over a year or what have you. You know, that was just frowned upon. If you, if you don't have the money to buy something... And don't buy it. Save up, and, and you'll appreciate it a lot more when you get it then, as well, rather than just you know getting something and, and tiring of it, and then having this, you know, being in debt for the next year or two years in order to pay it back. I know it's a bit harder to do if you if if you have to get a mortgage, but I mean even the mortgage is the same thing. It's creating money for them. So you know, I just want to say to people, you know, if you want to hurt these people that are doing this one way to do that is just refuse to create any more money for them doesn't mean you've got to stop using money because we have to use that because it's, it's a measure of value it's like you know if you're if it's like a tape measure basically you you can measure the length of something and say well that's what the length is and that's all the money is it, it, that's, it's a measure of value you're measuring the value of some of something that somebody's got 
And because it's somebody's promise to pay there, you can actually use it to purchase whatever it is that, 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 you, that you're buying with it. The only reason you can purchase that is because it is somebody's promise to pay. So it's, it's a measure of value and it's, and it's a promise. So, it's, so that's what the value is to it. And where it's been stolen by these Jews, you, you don't want, you just don't want to create any more of it for them because it's, you know, it's just, it's just contributing to their evil Babylon system to do that. Well, well, the credit card industry is absolutely evil. I mean, the the, the banks rake off a, a percentage, four, five, six percent, from every single transaction, and then they charge the borrower interest on top of that. And, and I've seen credit cards. I've seen credit cards. I had them when when I was young. I had a credit card that I remember was $5,000 and, and I had it maxed out because I was young and stupid and, and um, I looked at the bill one day and realized that when I paid the minimum payment that which was only about 50 something dollars that 18 cents was going on a principal and the entire rest balance of the minimum payment was going towards interest. So the credit card companies love it. When you ring up a credit card and they rake four to six percent off of every transaction that you, you, you've, um, ran through your card and then when you get it maxed out, you only pay the, um, the minimum balance and, and they make money on you forever. That they have an income from your labor. They have a chunk of your labor virtually forever because a $5,000 card and a 50 something dollar minimum payment, you're never going to pay that card off. You're never going to pay that debt. But the banks don't care. You could die with that debt. They've made 50 something dollars a month from you for your entire life from your labor. And that's what Hitler put a stop to. He saw that. He put, he put a stop to it. You, know, you can see that, that that's what was happening. There's, there's a, a, I think it's got Gottfried Fiedler. I might might be wrong with the name of it. There's, uh, slavery to interest, breaking the bank, slavery to interest. And this book it expi- explained all that. It's from 1918, I think it was. And um, I think he ended, he ended up having something to do with Hitler's government uh, economics, with the economic side of it. He might have been the economic can't think of the exact name of the um, position that he held, but he advocates in that book, he, he shows you how um, the Jews use the compound interest to suck all the wealth out of a society, and he, he um, looks at it as, as invest, um, industrial capital, which is real capital, which is wealth that's there from industry and production, and then you've got this, this interest capital, which is just there parasiting off the top of the, of the of the rest of the wealth. Now Hitler put a stop to that and he, he um, created a system which is like the one I'm advocating now where the money went to the nation rather than to the Jews. So he would give out um, uh, these uh, payment credits which could, which would then pay for public works like um, building the building the roads, building the cruise liners, uh, building houses for people to live in. So you give out these credits to them that they would then spend into the, um, into the, uh, circulation. And then that would cut, that would eventually come back to the, when it, when it eventually came back to them, it, it would be zeroed. It wasn't, you know, kept going. It, it was like a, a, the bookkeeping, um, entry thing that I'm, that I was mentioning 
earlier. So you didn't have inflation. You couldn't have inflation. You didn't have um, uh, interest put on this because that would have been making money from nothing. And the Jews hated it. And he, he even went so far as to when it when you uh, when he was trading with other countries, they 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 were bartering. So instead of buying things from another country in the American dollar, they were just saying, "Well, you know, give you this much coal for this much wool, and we'll swap it over." Because it's doing the international trade again, where the, where the Jews siphon their little bit of money off. Because everything has to be done in, in the either everything has to be done in um, the American dollar, which is like you see with the oil. They say that every, all the oil has to be sold in the American dollar. And as soon as the country says, "Well, I'm going to sell my oil, oil in the euro." Then the Jews will go in there and attack them. You know, as soon as you've got Gaddafi saying he's going to sell his oil in, in the gold dinar, then they go to war against them. Any country that tries to break themselves away from the, from the bankers' grip, then they get attacked. I think I think um, the the only countries left which don't have a, a central bank that's linked up with the rest now, I think, is Iran and North Korea. Is all I can think of, but Libya, Libya itself was separated before. But Hitler was, I think, was, was the most successful one, and he did, because he showed that that it worked, and that you don't need these banks to be running things. That you don't need them to run the economy. If you allow the Jews to run your economy, you just get inflation, inflation, deflation, which is by them increasing the money supply. Or, or tightening the figure on the money supply. That's how they create their inflation and their deflation. And then you, they cause great big crashes so that they can then buy up all the property with the money that you created and paid back to them. And then they buy, buy up all the property. Well, you know, well, that's the way that they work. Let, let me explain three terms real quick in, in, in the simplest terms I possibly can explain them. And, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians think... That, that, um, socialism is evil. And, and, and therefore, Hitler must have been a Marxist because he was a socialist and, and his system was evil. And, and believe me, Adolf Hitler is not the answer. He made a lot of mistakes. And, and we can identify many of those mistakes if we are truly Christians. However, he did, like America's founding fathers, attempt to build a sound state upon Christian principles. And, and let me explain real quick the difference in, in, in three terms. The, the um, socialism that most Americans are familiar with is not socialism at all. It's Marxism. And under Marxism, the, the, the people, quote-unquote, the people, because it's really a, a joke, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a scam, the people own everything. Therefore, everything is concentrated in the hands of the government. And and when the Marxist system fell in Russia, the Jews ended up owning everything. So you know who the real masters were. Marxism is a sham. Now, capitalism, uh, under Marxism, you could be a carpenter and you could have a hammer, but the government owns the hammer and tells you what to do with it. So you're basically a slave to the government. Under capitalism, you could be a carpenter and a corporation owns your hammer. And you work for the corporation and some Jew makes the profits. But under real organic socialism, the carpenter owns the hammer 
and the carpenter keeps his profits. And that's what socialism really is. It's the means of production in the hands of the workers and producers themselves. So if you're a farmer, you're expected to own your farm and you run your own farm. If you're a, a, a baker, you own the oven and you bake what you want, what you think is going to sustain you. If you're a carpenter, you own the hammer. That's socialism. Socialism is basically what um, we practiced in America without even knowing it until the rise of capitalism and, and usurious banking in, in the late 18 and early 1900s when we were transformed into a capitalist society. But for the first three, four hundred years of our history here on the North American continent, the people that lived on land usually were the owners of it and, 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 and the people that produced tangible goods usually were the owners of the means of production. The blacksmith owned his oven and his anvil. That's what socialism really means. That was the original Germanic socialism, and that was the socialism of Adolf Hitler. It was not Marxism. The Jew, in his media, in his political dialogue, has has us all wedged between two evils his brand of socialism which is really marxism and his brand of quote unquote freedom which is really capitalism whichever side of the coin we choose we end up in the hands of the jew and there are more than two choices there is a third way and that's organic original socialism which is what America practiced and what most of Europe practiced for many years but not by that name real nationalism is socialism isn't it I mean, it's looking after your people and, and that is social justice is looking after your people and doing the best for your people so Absolutely. nationalism is is social is socialism i think that's why you know it's called national socialism the, the two words are, are mutually interchangeable really it's just that the jews have, have walked it and, and made socialism into uh, marxism and communism you know one, one another one of the differences between them you know i had a look at some of Marx's work, and when he was talking about the bankers and the money, there was no mention of interest, you know, being the way that they siphoned all the money off the people. All they, all that, all the Marxist stuff was interested in was saying, look how much more these rich people have got. You know, you you want to take it back off them? You know, get jealous of them. It was it's stoking up feelings of jealousy among the people, of being jealous of of how much more money the rich bankers had, and they should go and take it back. Never explained that it was through interest. You know, that, that they had siphoned this money from the people. And it was just all all running on um, jealousy. It's, it's the same thing today. When when I look at you know, in Britain we have these movements. Um, these anti-tax movements that are trying to get the, the rich people to pay more taxes and, and the, all they're ever concerned about is getting the rich people to pay 
more taxes and it's because they say look how much more money this guy's got than you look how much more money he's got than you you want to take it off him you want to take it off him and and when you see people at the lower end of the scale they'll say look these firemen have got a pension and it's better than you and people will say take it off the firemen take it off the firemen why is why should he have a pension that that's that's better than me and, and you know it, it deceives people because what they should be saying is why haven't i got a pension as good as the firemen why can't they i want them to do something better for me i don't want them to take something from someone else i want them to do something better for me you know, they, they turn things the other way around to get people angry at other people and jealous of other people and, and wanting to bring other people down and then they go to the other to the other people and they get them to bring you down they'll go to the rich people and they'll say well your workers aren't working hard enough you know or, or why don't you import lots of foreigners they'll they'll do the work for cheaper import import lots of foreigners and then it won't cost you so much money so they'll, they'll import loads of foreigners it'll drive the wages down and then to the people instead of saying look you know you've got all these foreigners here that are taking your money instead of that they'll be winding the people up saying look the people at the top they, they're not paying enough taxes you want to get them to be paying more taxes now it's all a way of distracting people um, from what's really going on and the way they do it is nearly always by appealing to people's jealousy by envy trying to get people envious and, and jealous of other people you know, and that that's you know that again that goes back to to usury it, it's, and it's this love of money is the root of all evil you know there's no need to love it it's it's just a measure of value that's all it is there's no need to you know get jealous of people that, that have more of it you know you, it, the way things should be is if you have money you should you know look after people with it you know don't don't just try and earn money for the sake of, of earning money that's not the way they, as i said that's not the way they did things in the past they traded at a profit but not for profit you know just enough so that they could get by so that they weren't you know taking from somebody else they weren't profiting from somebody else's misery and all these all these movements today these mainstream movements that i see uh, they're all aimed at envy and jealousy and, and making people angry at, at their own people and we shouldn't be angry at our own people we should be you know trying to bring them around to our to our point of view you know we shouldn't be giving in to to the jealousy you know, I really hate to see it, see it when I see people spiteful with, with jealousy and envy towards people because they've got more than them. You know, all it is is material possessions. They can't take it with them. You know, and and because they've got more, they're going to be worried that they're going to be robbed all the time. They're going to be worried that they can't trust their friends. You know, those these people, these rich people, they can't have very um, close relationships with people because there's nobody they can trust because they're worried that they're going to get their money stolen all the time. Worried that they're going to get ripped off. You know, they're not the sort of people to envy. In the past, people who had wealth, as I say, most of the time, they were good people because they got there through innovation and and through being good people. That's you know, aristocracy. The word at the beginning of it is is Aryan. You know, it's noble, honourable. People that who were wealthy used to be honourable in the past, but now, thanks to usury, they they're not honourable. But don't be jealous of them. Don't want to be like them. Okay? You know, because they're, they're not nice people. I wouldn't want to be rich. You know, I, I really wouldn't want to be rich. I, I wouldn't be able to trust anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> well, on that, that note, we, to add, Bill? Uh, on that note, we might um, 
wish to end this program, that's that, that's probably a good way to end it. We shouldn't be um, what well, we shouldn't be angry with our white brethren who are still lost in the world. We should seek to find a way to reach down and pull them out of it. Um, now we understand that most of our brethren are, are reluctant to come out of it, so we have to let them continue to wallow in the mire. But we must understand that we were once there ourselves. We were once wallowing in the mire ourselves, not understanding true Christianity, not understanding that the um, treachery of the Jews and 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 um, but we should feel blessed that our eyes are open and, and, and seek to find ways to help our brethren and, and not merely bash them or, or, or despise them. Thank you for joining yeah, pull me, Pull yourself sir. out of the world and don't, um, don't ever get anything on credit. That's what I say. Pull yourself out of the world and... Don't ever get anything on credit. Well, well, right. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of things which that there's a lot of idols and there's a lot of distractions which <laughs> the um, the enemies of our God offer us, which we should not engage in. That there's without doubt, and and usury is one of the biggest ones because usury empowers the enemies of our God to control our world. No doubt. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh. We will be here in two weeks. I pray. If that's okay with you, Sven. Yeah, that's okay with me. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Good night.